Hebrews 11 this morning. So we're going to invite you to turn. We're going to look at a single verse in Hebrews 11, and then we're going to look at a whole bunch of other verses that are going to fill out Hebrews 11, verse 7. By the way, good to see some college faces and people back home and visitors during the Thanksgiving holiday. It's a blessing to, uh, to thank the Lord as we feast on his word. And uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7. Let me just begin reading that verse and get us launched. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen... In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Last week, uh, I introduced, well, three heroes of the faith from Hebrews 11, Abel, Enoch, And Noah, they were grouped together because in the Genesis account written by Moses, you have Genesis 5 through 7 that's speaking to a post-fall of man, pre-flood period of time, an epoch. It's the antediluvian period. These three men come from it. And so I'm kind of preaching them as a group, but we only covered Abel and Enoch and saved Noah for this morning. It's a pre-patriarchal period, pre-Abraham period that we're talking about. So it's a long time ago when men and women lived for a long, long, multi-hundred year lifespan. It's amazing to think about who they were then and how they so readily relate to us today. Talking about faith as the connection for being made right with God. It was through faith, by grace, through faith for them. It's by grace, through faith for us. It's how we come to know God personally. It's how we pursue God practically. It's how we draw near to the Lord is through believing, through this kind of faith that's displayed throughout Hebrews 11. It's defined for us and displayed for us through the lives of heroes of the faith. Abel, Enoch, they modeled true faith. Abel's faith in death, his blood still speaks to us. His faith speaks to us. Also Enoch who walked with God and then was not. His miraculous departure speaks to us. Now Noah, now let me ask you about Noah. Who has not heard about Noah, either in children's Sunday school or in a flannel graph setting or in from a children's um, Bible setting, who hasn't? I mean, some someone here maybe hasn't heard of the story of Noah with where things are trending, but many of us, most of us have heard of the story of Noah, of the ark he was commissioned to build, the animals that he was to gather to oversee the worldwide flood to destroy the earth. Everyone has basically heard that story, but who would admit as to whether or not you spiritually have ever been affected by that story? I'd venture to say some of you, most of us would say, you know, I don't know if at the depths of my being, I've been moved spiritually by Noah. I might believe it is a true story, 
And I might believe that it's not a myth as most of the world takes it to be, like a children's fairy tale. But I don't know that I've been moved by Noah. Well, my goal this morning is to set the table for the scripture and the Holy Spirit of God to move you spiritually because the scripture itself testifies that we are to be moved by Noah, by his faith. And Noah is mentioned in a gospel, it's mentioned in Jude, it's mentioned in First Peter, it's mentioned in, his name is mentioned in testimonies, mentioned in Second Peter. There's a great big portion that we're going to read from in Genesis about Noah. We are supposed to be moved by his testimony, who he was, where he was, what he did, why he did what he did. His marathon race of 120 years, that needs to impact us spiritually. That's what the scripture teaches. No one but Noah makes faith this practical. No one but Noah had an assignment this demanding and this extraordinary as Noah did. It's amazing. This is an indescribable task that he was given to do in an indescribably horrible time period to do it in. All for God's glory, sight unseen with what God was going to do. In fact, the deluge that we're going to read of where God destroyed the world is no more a fairy tale than what he's going to do to our world in the future where he burns it in fire. We're in a very similar situation as to where Noah was then as to where we are today in our world, in our society, and in our task so what we're answering from Hebrews eleven seven is why was Noah's obedience so extraordinary? Practically, why should we be moved by it at all? Number one, Noah's obedience was sight unseen. If you look at verse 7 of Hebrews 11, it begins and ends with the same phrase, by faith. Should in your Bibles, if you see that, it's bookended by faith. And then at the end of the verse, by faith. He did everything sight unseen or by faith. He believed with the eyes of his heart, not with something that he had ever seen or experienced before that the Lord promised was going to happen. It's important to observe that Noah's faith was this substantive faith. And just as the Lord one day will with finality destroy the earth with fire, Noah was promised that the Lord was going to destroy his world. Every living, breathing, plant, animal, everything on land was going to be destroyed. It's an awful and glorious event if you think about it in terms of God's power and God's wrath and God's vindication being on display. So the way we're going to fill this out is we're going to look at Hebrews eleven seven to outline and frame our thinking as we go. But you're going to have your thumb there and we're going to go back to Genesis 6 and 7 in particular to fill in the gaps. It reveals the depth of faith that Noah had and where we need to live and the faith that we need to have and exude so as a warning, verse 7, Hebrews eleven seven. it says, Noah was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. That's our first point, it, sight unseen, events that were coming that 
he probably had to really grasp in his own heart to even try to relate with. Genesis 2.5, speaking of, I think, a a pre-flood time period in God's creative order, it says, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Rain hadn't really been a thing yet, I believe, when God gave this warning. Noah was to construct a massive sea-going vessel, a massive ship, which is really more like a box. This was like he was constructing a bunker for he and his family where a cataclysmic meltdown was promised to take place. And this was going to save him and save his family. Was it for the express purpose of not being destroyed where everyone else would be? Probably lived somewhere in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In other words, he lived in a desert a long way from any ocean or sizable lake. So maybe he's asking himself, what is rain, Lord? Well, turn in your Bibles back to Genesis 6. Genesis 6. We're going to pick up in verse 11. We're going to read this. According to the way Hebrews 11.7 lays it out, so we may have to do some backtracking. We will do some backtracking, but start in Genesis 6.11. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth, the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits and a tight 30 cubits. Make a roof. For the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, but... I will establish my covenant or promise with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. It's a lot to take in there. It's true though. This is what happened. It's a pre-flood atmosphere, different than anything we know of today. You have water that was 
separated by the expanse or the land mass, however the continents were at that time. Things were separating water, but you have water separation that is not just horizontal or geographically in terms of our world, but not just below, but also above there was water. Genesis 1, 7 makes that clear. And God made the expanse or the land and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. So separation was not only across, but also above, above and below. So many believe that there was a canopy of water affecting the UV sunlight, as I mentioned before, propagating a multi-generation lifespan period chronicled through Genesis chapter 6, where people lived a long, long period of time. When God released the flood top down and bottom up. If you look at Genesis 7:11, look over there in your Bible. It says in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month, very precise language here, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So you have this cataclysmic event that's happening from underneath where things are blowing up from underneath with water and coming down at the same time. Cataclysmic. So we see in Genesis 7:11, Noah's 600 years old. Guess that's pretty old. Kind of. Not next to Methuselah, but it's old. When God directed him to do this task, Noah could have thought, "Hey, I've seen it all. I'm not doing this. I've lived my life." That wasn't his attitude. His attitude is Genesis 6.22. He did all God that God commanded him. And that refrain is repeated Genesis 7.5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Someone said that Noah did one of the greatest practical acts of faith in all history when he cut down the first gopher tree to build the ark. So how big was this task? Well, aside from the animals and whatever supernatural summoning Noah had in terms of drawing the the two-by-two animals and the seven pair of clean animals, let's just look at building the ark. An exact cubit size, we're not exactly sure, but the lowest number would have been 17 and a half inches for a cubit, and so the ark was 438 feet long, 73 feet wide, and 44 feet high. It's basically one and a half times the length of a football field, and virtually as wide as a football field, and more than four stories high, three decks, 96,000 square feet decks. Naval engineers report the dimensions Um, were proof of stability, not maneuverability. This was not a maneuvering ship. This, again, is like a floating fortress that was to protect eight people and the animal kingdom through a deluge. And then post-deluge, where they're there for just under a year, floating, waiting for the waters to recede. It's protection from a cataclysmic meltdown like a bunker, like I mentioned before. If you want to visit the replica, go to northern Kentucky. I haven't been there yet, but online. Evolutionists, they debate the the validity of this vessel. And I was listening to Bill Nye jeer at the ark. He said, 
Quote, a worldwide flood, 500-foot wooden boat, eight zookeepers for 14,000 individual animals, every land plant underwater for a full year. I ask us all, is this really reasonable? The scripture says yes. But if you believe the scripture, it's yes and amen. This is what happened. And Noah was to believe that this was going to happen sight unseen. We didn't see it either. We see it by faith in scripture. He's looking forward to what was going to take place. That's true faith. Spurgeon said only that is true faith, which believes everything that is revealed by the Holy Spirit, whether it be joyous or distressing. Noah believed what seemed highly improbable, if not absolutely impossible. There was no sea where Noah laid the keel of his ark. I do not even know where there was a river there. He was to prepare a seagoing vessel and construct it on dry land. How could water be brought there to float it? Well, he just obeyed. Point two. Noah's obedience was in the context of a world that is, that is or was as bad as it has ever been. I think the world of Noah's day was far worse than our day today. And you go, how can that be? This world is really going bad quickly. True, but it was worse then. You stay in Genesis to find that out. Genesis 6. I mean, Noah's attitude was doing everything by faith in Hebrews, again, eleven seven in reverent fear, in godliness and personal piety. Noah didn't feel like he was under a death sentence. He didn't feel like he was afraid of God in an unhealthy way. He was fearing and reverencing the Lord in humble obedience. He didn't feel like he was on death row. He was, Genesis 6, 9, blameless. He was careful to obey. So look at this in Genesis 6. How bad was the world that Noah's obedience was manifest in? It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now we're going to get into some real controversial waters. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Look at the contrast here in verse 9. But Noah, I mean, things are really ugly. And I'm going to describe and unpack how badly it was. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why was Noah chosen? Because he was godly. Was he perfect? No. But was he blameless? Yes. He was godly. 
The beauty of Hebrews 11 is that these are men and women just like you and me. We are to walk with God. The Bible says walk by the Holy Spirit. Make no provision for the flesh. We walk with Christ. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We know the plan. We know what's coming. We know why we're here. We know what's wrong with the world. We have more revelation than Noah did. He had more years on us. But we have the same faith. And we're to walk in that faith, walk with God, not perfection, but the direction of our life, the blamelessness of our life, repenting and believing, walking by the Holy Spirit. This is what God saw in Noah in contrast to everybody else on earth. Look at, look at again, working backwards in the text in Genesis 5, look at the, the rampant runway of Noah. How did we find Noah? How did he come about to be this godly person? Verse 23 of Genesis 5, it says, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him, took him right up to heaven. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. My kids, um, my three little boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, I mean Carson, Brady, and Owen, we had a little Bible study together and they broke out into a debate over who was the oldest person that ever lived. I forget which one was really sticking hard on Methuselah, but he was right. When Lamech, verse 28, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief and from our work, relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. By the way, that idea of relief is the picture of Noah's godly influence. It's relief in a hard, sin-laden, hard-working world. Godliness was a breath of fresh air to many. Noah was a godly man. He walked, he likewise walked with God. He had favor on his life. He was blameless, the Bible says in Genesis 6, 9. Look at that. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Like Enoch, Noah walked with God. That's Noah. At this point, at the end of chapter 5, he's 500 years old. He fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 32 there. All of this fathering, all of this walking with the Lord is in with the backdrop of a sin-cursed world that is getting worse and worse. And I believe that the sin picture here in verse 1 of Genesis 6 is multiplying. As people are multiplying, as people are living in long lifespans, sin's creative devices are multiplying and worsening and worsening and worsening. As the population grew, so did its sin. Now, who were the Nephilim? Look at verse two. It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Sons of God is a term used 
in the Psalms. It's used by Job. It typically, if not always, means angels. Here, I believe it means the fallen angels. You have fallen angels who are sons of men, who are taking on the bodily form, a human form of men. Angels, when you see them interacting like around the tomb or in the Old Testament, when the three met with Abraham and then over to Sodom and Gomorrah, the two were in the house with Lot. These are, these are human manifestations of angels. We will have entertained angels unawares, the book of Hebrews says. So you have sons of God, you have angels that are fallen, that find women attractive in this antediluvian phase, this pre-flood phase where people are there for hundreds and hundreds of years and they're multiplying a race together in cohabitation that are called the Nephilim. The Nephilim means the fallen, the fallen. This is uh, giants in the land, people who are sinfully giants, demonized in this world, bringing disgust into the heart of our Lord, you have Noah who's walking with God in verse four of Genesis six, Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward. What does that mean? Well, the Nephilim were there as a race in pre-flood, but then later on it picks up that these fallen angels in numbers, I mean, yeah, in numbers 13, 33 come back after the flood and create a second round of a Nephilim race, a fallen race, Numbers 13, 33. These were the people that when the spies went into the promised land, the wilderness generation pre-Israel is wandering through the wilderness. They finally make it to Kadesh Barnea. The spies go into the land and they come back and they bring a report that basically says, comparing these giants in the land to ourselves, we are grasshoppers. This is a second round of Nephilim that are there. And some will trace the Anakim race that's from this Nephilim to the area of Gath. Now, Joshua was Moses' successor, and he was devoted to wipe out the Anakim race that was um, left in Gath, Joshua eleven twenty one and 22. And later in biblical history, there's a nine-foot giant named Goliath from Gath, who's a descendant of Anak, of this race, who David slew. This too could be genetically tied to the Nephilim that are post-flood. It's hard to pin it all down, but it isn't hard to understand that things were bad at a fever pitch level to the point. If you look back at Genesis six, verse three, God sets a time fuse to wipe out this world. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The fuse is lit. You've got 120 years to obey Noah. You have 120 years to build this ark. Well, as bad as things were, Noah's obedience was saving. It was a saving obedience. What does godly reverential fear look like in this world? Remember Hebrews eleven seven. Noah's obedience was in reverential fear. What does reverential fear look like 
in this society, well, basically, it's building an ark and it's preaching repentance. If you fill this thing out with the whole Bible, no obeyed at all costs. One person said, you know, it had to be costly, not just his reputation, not just his physical labor, but also his finances to construct something like this. It's safe to assume that others weren't helping him with this absurd task, right? In the middle of the desert to lay the keel of a massive ship there. I don't even know if people had seen seagoing vessels at that point in Mesopotamia, let alone knowing how to build one. His sons probably were of no help for years and years and years and years. But he did it nevertheless. He built and he preached. Second Peter 2.5, you can look there. It says Noah was a herald of righteousness. This is what Kent Hughes said about his preaching ministry. He said, for 120 years while he labored on the ark, he preached to all who would listen. Perhaps sometimes he preached from the construction scaffolding to the curious tire kickers who came by to gawk. Other times, no doubt, he went on preaching missions throughout the countryside. This was his marathon. Let me ask you this. What's your marathon? Just dig deep in your heart for a minute. I mean, Noah... From age 500 to 600, he's, he's running this marathon. He's building the ark. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching by faith. A lot of times we can boil down the big things in our lives to about one or two things, and that's what we should do if we're going to be successful. We have to do a whole bunch of other things, but really we should major on one or two things. What has God given you to build what has he given you to do? What does faithfulness look like? What does faith in your life look like? Believing God and doing the ministry for him. Noah preached 120 years. Not one person was ready to go into the ark with him, except his family. Not even a solitary other person came in. Spurgeon said many may have believed and died before the deluge, but not one of them entered the ark with him. Was it worth it? It's worth it. That's faithfulness. We preach. Sometimes it's like parables to people. They go, I can't understand. Oftentimes we preach, we speak, and God hardens the heart. I was talking to a guy just this last week who was giving me some coaching in a sport. And I just thought, you know, I've known this guy four or five years. I remember the first conversation we had together and he gave me some encouragement and I reminded him of that and he nearly broke out into tears. I said, you know, what, what's your spiritual life look like? And it's the, well, I, I meet God out in nature, but I don't believe in organized religion. I come from a Catholic background, but those are bygone days and I'm just witnessing to him and witnessing to him and telling him truth. And he hugged me. But what does that mean? We preach and we're faithful and you have to leave the results to God and let God open the door to witness. That's what we do. First Peter three eighteen and 20. Listen to this. It ties right in with our narrative for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
If you believe that when Jesus died physically, that he went somewhere and preached to those who were in prison, what spirits are we talking about? Listen, verse 20, because they, these spirits in prison, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Christ went and preached to them. He gave them another round while the ark was being prepared. That was when Noah preached in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Noah's family was saved. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says that when you have a believer in the home, otherwise they would be unholy. But when you have a believer in the home, they are not unclean, but they are holy. What does that mean? That means your children are influenced by the gospel. Children in children's ministry are influenced by the gospel. Children in Awana ministry are influenced by the gospel. Children at Grace Christian School are influenced by the gospel. Children under the hearing of my voice this morning, hopefully by God's grace, are influenced by the gospel. Do not underestimate the power of your life and the gospel, the power of reverential fear, the power of walking with God, the power of living blamelessly, the power of repenting when you blow it, the power of making things right with people in in the name of the gospel, the gospel saves and the gospel saved Noah's family physically. And then spiritually, depending on how you read the narratives, it is God's grace to his family's safety. And it was worth it to him. 25 years, 50 years, 75 years, 100 years, 120 years. Noah's passion to obey was not easy. Look at Genesis 7, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. I hope Noah loved animals. I love my wife, so I love animals. We have a lot of animals. It's like as they move out of the house, we move an animal in. I don't understand it. Verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Do you see that? Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Some will say that the word pitch is the same word for a tone in Hebrew. So the pitch that put the ark together is a picture of the atoning work of God, keeping people safe inside the ark while the wrath of God is pouring on the outside. We're safe in the atoning blood of Christ. Genesis 7:15 says they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. I love that phrase. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And listen, and the Lord 
shut him in. It's Genesis 7.16. The ark, according to Spurgeon, was more like a massive coffin. It's like Noah was dead to this old world and floating into a new world. Noah's obedience was all these things. It was not only saving, but the gospel, as we've mentioned, also is condemning. It's condemning and it is confirming. Just look back at Hebrews eleven seven quickly. It said, in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It was condemning and confirming. It's a heart of righteousness that hardens people's hearts. What hardened his heart, people's hearts? Well, Noah's life, Noah's message, Noah's ministry, and the ark itself, it hardened people. When you come into the safety of Christian community, I think some people look longingly and say, you know, I, I wonder what that's like for people to go inside Christian community to know people and feel safe in the confines of church life and truth and clarity. And yet, morally speaking, when people want the world, they say, no, I want what's out there. But what's out there is lethal spiritually, right? And what's in here is safe. Spurgeon goes on in his sermon on this. He said that his family, Noah's family entering the ark, he says, I do not think I should have selected an ark as a place of residence myself, nor would you have chosen to live in a place pitched within and without with pitch with only one door and only one window, a great menagerie, menagerie of birds, beasts, reptiles inside, whether the window ran around the top or just under the roof. So as to let light into the whole structure, I cannot tell, but I have no doubt that the jeering world said of Noah, well, old man, you've built a prison for yourself. And the sooner you go inside and shut yourself in, the better for we have had enough of your preaching. <laughs> When the good old man and his family went in, the Lord shut the door. They were dead to the world. They were dead to it. They weren't letting their, the teenage daughters go out the back door, right? Shut in. Nowhere in Scripture explicitly says that that world was outwardly mocking Noah. I looked that up. It's interesting. But Second Peter 3 implies that there was mocking. Because in the latter days, verse 3, there'll be scoffers that come, right? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for what? Fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you need a reason to witness? I do. I do it naturally once I start talking, but it's those seconds before I open my mouth that kind of hold me back from sharing Christ. But once you kind of take a step and just say, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe this. 
and get rolling, often the Spirit of God just takes over and gives you words, gives you connections, opens doors in people's hearts and lives. They're glad that you open that conversation. Oftentimes, especially if you're doing it in love, out of concern for someone's heart, do you realize that our world is going to be consumed with fire? Do you realize that that fire is temporal compared to the fire of eternity that people will have to endure in a Christless hell? One more quote from Spurgeon, I promise, but I like it. He who does not believe God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through atoning blood. I charge you who profess to the Lord not to be unbelieving with regard to the terrible threatenings of God to the ungodly. Believe the threat, even though it should chill your blood. We're in the same situation as Noah was. What's your disposition to the world? Are you cold or are you soft? Do you recoil or do you engage it? Yeah, we're making preparations for heaven. We're investing in our children. We're investing in our own minds and our own souls. But do not forget the world that's around you. Some will believe. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. This is right in the context of what he just said about Noah's deluge and the earth burning in fire. It says, God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart is soft. Perhaps Noah's preaching was tender. Don't know his tone. His life condemned the world. His message was for people to repent. He was a fool for Christ. And because he was a fool for Christ, Hebrews eleven seven says he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, this righteousness is important to understand because hopefully it'll be freeing to you. Noah was blameless as we saw in Genesis chapter 6. He walked with God, but he wasn't perfect. Do you have to be perfect to preach? Do you have to be perfect to obey sight unseen? Do you have to be perfect to follow God's mission? I hope not. Do you feel like you have to be perfect to do God's work? Noah wasn't perfect. Remember Noah's sin in Genesis 9? He gets drunk. His son looks upon him. It's a shame. The Bible's quick to show the sins and faults of these heroes of the faith. If you'll just read all of the story, no one's perfect. But he was blameless. He was godly. He had reverential fear. It's intermixed. It's to show us that we can't trust in man. We can't ultimately trust man to be righteous. We can't trust our own righteousness. That's not the righteousness that's being spoken of here in Hebrews eleven seven. The righteousness of Christ is a gift that comes from outside of us onto us, into our account. When Jesus looks upon you, he sees the very righteousness of Christ. When you stand before God one day, and you've heard it said in the old evangelism tract, if you were to be asked, why should I let you into my heaven by holy God, what would you say? Well, the ultimate answer is, it's because my righteousness is not my own. It's the righteousness of your son that allows me to enter into your presence. You've made me your child. I know that I'm your child. 
That's the righteousness of Christ. That's what's called the alien outside of us righteousness that is bestowed upon us as Christians. We are, as Romans says, Romans 4, counted righteous in Christ. Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but believes, exercises faith in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We're always saved by grace through faith. Always. Always. Christ is our hero. It's always by grace. So why do we preach Christ? Why do you need to assume the accountability, feel the accountability that you're supposed to go preach to somebody? Why? Let's end with the words of Jesus. What's his commentary on all of this story? Matthew 24, 36 through 39, it says, but concerning that day, speaking of Christ's return, all of Matthew 24 is talking about Christ's return, two people in the field, one's there, one's gone, Christ is coming back. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Here's the illustration of Christ's return. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So they're just oblivious, just partying. They don't care about what's coming. And they were unaware, verse 39, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the son of man. So will be the coming of the son of man. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 39. Take this to heart. This Noah's situation is our situation. Yes, we're repulsed by the sin of the world, but don't use that as an excuse not to engage it with the gospel. That stuff's not even in my notes. It's just on my heart. I just really sense the need to exhort all of us to be evangelists, to be preachers of the gospel, carrying forth the message for the glory of God so that people can be saved because there is a cataclysmic end that's, awaiting us, right? It's coming and Jesus will return and rescue his bride. But we have to invite people in. Let's do it. Let's invite people this Thanksgiving week to come to Christ so they can be truly thankful for salvation. I know some of you who did not know Christ, who now know Christ, who are sitting here even this morning. The gospel's real. It's the power of God to salvation for those who would believe.